Good morning. <laughs> summer at Springvale. Summer is closing down for all of us. Uh, just a couple weeks left, I guess. One week, two weeks, I don't know, however you measure your summer, but it's coming to an end. Did you feel how cool it was the last few mornings when you got up? Uh, so we are looking forward to a new season, and that's the way life works, isn't it? We go through seasons. So if you have, uh, you may see around you, or you may have a, a child that's with you. This morning they got a brown paper bag. Uh, that's because uh, due to uh, the, the, the shortage of staff with our Springvale kids, we've needed to move some of those uh, kids into our services, so welcome them. Thank you for all of those that do serve. But hey, here's an opportunity as you're coming back to the fall, you go, hey, I, I know I need to use my gifts. Where can I serve? And for some of you, that means kids ministry. So I want to encourage you. You can always hit info at Springvale or go to our welcome desk and just say, hey, I'm interested and we'll get you connected. But there's others, other areas of service too. There's behind the scene tech areas, there's youth areas, there's finance areas. There's a whole bunch of different areas that you can serve and use your gifts and I want to encourage you this fall to make sure you use your gift because Jesus gave it to you to use. And you may be saying, I don't know what my gift is. And I remember when I first became a Christian, I wasn't sure what my gift is. And what I've discovered is just start serving where opportunity is. And then those around you will help you to understand, oh yeah, this is where you're really good. Like they told me, yeah, you don't really... You're not really gifted in kids' ministry. You might want to avoid that the rest of your life. Uh, so uh, you, you get directed in those things. So I want to encourage you to make sure you're connected and serving. Uh, this morning we were going to welcome Dustin Borland and Raquel and their two children. They all have COVID, so uh, that's not going to happen till November 11th, but, or I mean uh, September 11th, and uh, so you can be praying for them. In fact, let's all pray together and commit ourselves to hear the Word of God and pray for the Borlands. This morning, God, we lift up Dustin, Raquel, and their two children and pray for your spirit to give them strength and healing. Uh, Lord, and that they will be, Dustin, be ready to go, and he starts supposedly today, uh, but uh, we just pray that you'll give them strength for this week, this family, as they adjust to the move and then come to a new place in the fall and the kids start a new school. We, we're just asking for your spirit to help them to uh, face the things that they face and then be able to serve with hearts that love you. God, as uh, speaking of hearts that love you, may we love you as we hear your word. May it stir within us a deeper love for you, a love to know you more, to experience you more, to obey you more. May those things flow in us as a church, but also as individuals as we look into your word. Amen. So I had an appointment last week. Uh, I arrived early because uh, I had another appointment following. It's going to be tight. I wanted to make sure I got there in time because I knew this appointment would take some time. Walked in the reception room and the receptionist said, Lisa, not the person's real name, Lisa is going to be late. If you just want to wait in the reception room, she'll come as soon as she's available. 
So I'm sitting there and one minute becomes three, becomes five, becomes 10. Now we're getting on to 15 minutes and I'm boiling inside because she doesn't respect me or my time enough to plan her life to be here on time. And so just as I'm about ready to get up and leave, she pops her head in the reception room. Hey, Ed, uh, I'll just be one or two minutes. Is that okay? Can you wait? And I'm like, yeah, I can wait. And uh, she could tell by my attitude that I wasn't too pleased about it. She disappeared. One minute became two minutes, became five minutes, became eight minutes. Now we're pushing 20 minutes past the start of the appointment. And I am just seething because she does not respect me. And she thinks that she can just push the time back and no big deal, no consequences. Hey, my life is about me. Too bad it doesn't work for you. And so I'm, 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 when she walks in and she's all happy, come on, Ed, let's go. I, I, I'm not quite so happy. I'm not the, the wonderful spry self that, that she is. And as we begin to talk, of course she apologized. Yo, I'm so sorry for the delay. And I'm like, yeah, right, yeah, yeah sure. And, and that's what I'm thinking in my mind. But she can tell through my attitude that's coming out, I am not too pleased. And I can tell by my attitude coming out that I'm not too pleased. And just as I was about to respond to a question, the Holy Spirit whispers to me about my attitude. Can you guess what the Holy Spirit whispers into my spirit? I'm not sure you can guess. But what the Holy Spirit whispered to me is what comes out in the life of David. And we've been studying the life of David. We end that series this summer. And he was a man after God's own heart. And so this is yet another way that the Holy Spirit, that God the Father, that Jesus looked back at David and say, there was a man after my own heart. Second Samuel chapter 9. Uh, we're going to look at a story of grace, a story of kindness. Second Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, David asked. Now, we're not told who he asked, but I'm sure there was somebody around. David asked, is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Let's just stop. The context is being set with that one verse. Who's Saul? Well, Saul was the former king. Oh, yeah, the former king that tried to kill David several times. In fact, the former king that was trying to kill David and forced David into the wilderness where he ran for his life in desperation and in oppression for years not always having enough to eat fearing for the life of his followers his family his children barely escaping death running from place to place never having a home and this man relentlessly pursued him he was David's enemy. So why in the world would he want to show kindness to the house of his greatest enemy? Well, we're actually told, is there anybody to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? So Jonathan, who was he? Well, he was Saul's oldest son, heir to the throne, David's closest friend. 
But more importantly, Jonathan was the man with whom David had made a covenant. Now that word is big in scripture. A covenant is like a sacred promise that you don't break. The closest thing we have to a covenant, which indeed it is a covenant, is a marriage covenant when, two, when a man and a woman meet together in front of God and their family and friends and they covenant, they make a sacred promise to God and the people around them that we will be one. It's not a light covenant. It's not a light promise. It's not something you, you stop because you don't feel like it anymore. It's not something you can break without serious consequences. In fact, it's not meant to be broken. And that's who Jonathan is. Now, Saul, his enemy, Jonathan, his closest friend, the man with whom he had made a sacred covenant. Now that's going to become very important as we go through here. Now, verse 2, there was a servant in Saul's household named Ziba. And they summoned him to appear before David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? Yes, at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Now Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Machir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. So the king, David, had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Emil. Now, a couple of interesting things about this story. First of all, Mephibosheth is the grandson to Saul, son of Jonathan, but grandson to Saul. He is the direct line. He is the one that's directly in line for the throne had Saul survived and his house survived. So he is an enemy of David. Cultural context and most wise people would say, you need to get rid of him. Not like, you know, give him a job and push him out to the edge of the kingdom, like kill him. So that anybody who disagrees with you doesn't have somebody they can prop up as their king who has a rightful claim. And you'd think, Mephibosheth knowing that, he would have come to David and begged for mercy. But it's the reverse. David, the powerful one now, the one whom God has justified and given the kingship, goes to Mephibosheth. David initiates grace. And we're told that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet. If you read the story previously, when uh, there was a an emergency and, and uh, the, a foreign enemy was coming. The nurse picked him up as a baby but dropped him in her haste and he never recovered. You know, what, what was life like for a lame person 3,000 years ago in Israel? We, um, I went to India several times. One of the times I went, I went to the Taj Mahal, which is absolutely phenomenal, it's beautiful. But when you enter in, at least the entrance I went in, it's where the beggars gather because that's where the tourists are coming. 
And uh, while Taj Mahal is absolutely incredible, that's not what I remember about my visit there. I remember walking through the gate, or through a gate, and there on the ground was a beggar. And the reason I remember this beggar in particular, though there were many other ones, was his legs didn't work. He was lame in both feet. And he had his ill-formed uh, legs, not, they were just sticks, like tiny, it tucked up and I think tied to his chest, and he got around by scooting on his hands and his butt all over. And he came moving toward us uh, as we walked in because his only way to survive was to beg and to receive from others. It was one of the saddest sights I've ever seen. To see that man with no dignity, crawling, pushing himself along the ground, hoping for some pennies. Well, that was the life for Mephibosheth. I mean, accessibility and care about the dignity of people was not an issue. You either contributed or you didn't contribute, and if you didn't contribute, you lived off the largesse or the help of other people around you, and that was Mephibosheth. Lame in both feet. And this man, son of Emil, has taken pity on him. Machir, son of Emil, provides for him. Another one thing that's told us, where is he, says the king? He's in Lodabar. Well, Lodabar, where in the world is Lodabar? Well, it's just, just a little village on the outskirts of the kingdom. He's as far away from David as he can get because he doesn't want to be noticed because he's an enemy of David by lineage. And so he's way out in Lodabar. You know what Lodabar means? It means no word, no communication. Mephibosheth, born a royal heir to the throne of Israel, is lame and both feet, unable to provide for himself, stuck in the middle of nowheresville, hidden out of touch with everybody and everything and is an enemy of the most powerful man in the country. He is a broken, helpless man, dependent on others, and always wondering, will I survive today? This is the man who David calls. And you can imagine for Mephibosheth, when he is called, the king wants to see you, what do you think he's thinking? This is my last day. He's going to get rid of me now. The kingdom's firmly in his hands. He's had great victories. God has blessed him. Nobody's going to blink an eye when he gets rid of me. And so look at what happens. Verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan and son of Saul, came, son of Saul, his enemy, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied, don't be afraid. Why would he say, don't be afraid? Well, because Mephibosheth, his only expectation would be, I'm about to die today. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore you to the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. You will, be always, you will always eat at my table. And Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That's how he viewed himself. Then the king summoned Ziba, 
Saul steward and said to him, I've given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. Now you can imagine, he was the king. He, had the, he was the largest landowner or one of them in Israel and it's all given back to him. I've given it all back to him and you and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that the master's grandson may be provided for. Can you imagine the income from the largest landowner in Israel that's an agrarian society, that they make their money primarily and first from the land, and he's the, now the largest landowner. How wealthy in an instant he has become. And then Ziba said to the king, your, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant will, will t- to do. And so Mephibosheth sat at Dabel's table like one of the king's son, and he stayed there for the rest of his life. And, and here, he, he's, he's this broken man in Lodabar, hidden from the rest of the, uh, the world in Nowheresville, and now the king takes notice of him. He initiates kindness toward him. He brings him in. He's, he's ended the idea that I want to kill you and replace it. I, want, I don't want to kill you, I want to give you life. And then he says, you will have everything that your grandfather owned and, and it'll be yours and all the income from it will be yours. You're going to be a wealthy man and you will be in my family. You'll be at my table every day. You have a place at the table. Who has a regular place at your table? For most of us, we would say, well, regular place? Only our family. Yep, you will be part of my family. Now, this is a story of grace, but it's also a story of responsibility. And typically when it's preached, David, because he is, he is a picture of Jesus who would come and who would, would take broken uh, sinners who are enemies of God and he would show grace to us and he would give us a great inheritance, Ephesians chapter one. He would make us a place at his table. We are adopted into his family and he would make us wealthy beyond all measure because we have all the spiritual blessings, not worldly blessings, spiritual blessings in Christ, the things that are forever, that are eternal, that matter, like eternal life, forgiveness, the presence of God, the wisdom and knowledge and experience of God, the right to walk into his presence, the things that matter that we don't even know about. David, is the picture of what Jesus does for us. But, remember that, do you, do you know that um, there's this picture, and I, I, I just thought of this this morning, otherwise I'd have it for you and put it on the screen. Um, it's a picture, it's a drawn picture, and you look at it and, and somebody asks you, what do you see? And some people say, oh, I see an old hag. And other people go, no, I see a beautiful woman. Do you know that one? Put up your hand if you know that picture, I wanna make sure, yeah, most of you have seen that one, right? So, Depending on how you look at it, you get a different picture. Now that's hard to do drawing. It's extremely hard to do in a story. And it requires incredible uh, literary ability to use a story that means two things at once. But that's what the author does here. 
This is, David is a picture of Christ and his grace to us. But if you look into the story and see the story within the story, you will also see David is a picture for us. And it comes out of this line. Why, David, would you be so kind to Mephibosheth? And it comes out of verse 7a, where he says, Don't be afraid. I will surely show you kindness for the sake of of your father Jonathan. Two times we are told that in this story. For the sake of your father Jonathan. Why does he say that? Well, because David has made a covenant, a sacred promise that cannot be broken with Jonathan. When Jonathan last saw him, Jonathan said to him, now make a covenant with me that I know you're going to be king. Now this is Jonathan speaking, who is the heir to the throne. I know you're going to be king, and so when you're king, promise me that you will show kindness to my house and my descendants. Make a a, a sacred promise before God and before me right now that you will not eliminate my descendants when you become king, like most kings would do. And David makes the promise. He makes this covenant, and now he's acting it out. But unless we know why he made the covenant, we will not understand the other implication of this story. So go back to 1 Samuel. Go back to 1 Samuel, and I want to look at 1 Samuel 20, where the covenant that David is referring to when he says, for the sake of Jonathan, your father, he's referring to the covenant he made with Jonathan. I want to show you where he made that covenant, because why? he made it is crucial. Verse 12, 1 Samuel chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, okay, so let me give you some context. David comes to Jonathan and says, your dad's trying to kill me. No, he's not trying to kill you. Yeah, he is. So Jonathan checks it out and he finds out, ooh, my dad is trying to kill him. And then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. So I'm going to go to my father, David. I swear before God, I'm making a holy promise to you, a covenant with you. I will go and find out if my dad truly intends to kill you. And if he is favorably disposed toward you, I'll let you know. If, if, if you just misread the situation, you know, the times he tried to jab a spear into you, maybe he was just playing around. But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord, okay, so here's the sacred holy covenant, deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, may the Lord call David's enemies to account. 
And who are David's enemies? His father. And so Jonathan is saying, I make a covenant with you, David. Before David ever made the covenant, he goes, I'm making a promise, a sacred covenant with you that I will stand between you and my father. I will stand between the wrath of my father and your safety. I will stand between the judgment of the king and for your life. I will put myself in between you two, even if it means I will die, which he does. And so David responds to the covenant. The covenant that he made with Jonathan is his response to the covenant Jonathan is making with him. It's one covenant. And Jonathan says, I will stand between you and the king, between wrath and safety, and you will respond by loving me and my family and descendants and always showing kindness. Though the world around you would say, don't respond with kindness. That's weakness. That's terrible. They'll use his family to get at you. He said, you promised me before God you will do that. And that was the covenant made between Jonathan and David. Now go back to the story of Mephibosheth and David's fulfilling his part of the covenant. Jonathan indeed stood between his father and David. Between death and life between wrath and safety. And Jonathan paid his life to stand between Saul and David. And now David has life. And so now David is fulfilling his part of the covenant to show kindness to the descendants of Jonathan for Jonathan's sake. Ask yourself, Where have I heard this story before? Does this not sound familiar to you? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, does this story not sound familiar? That Jonathan stands between David and between the king and between the wrath of the king on a man between the king and the father and the just judgment of another. Does this not sound familiar to you? Did you know how God sees us when we're outside of Christ? I mean, this, okay, I just, warning, this isn't gonna be popular. This doesn't fit the cultural context we live in, but it's a living, abiding, Word of God. This is how we are viewed by God and assessed by God outside of Christ. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He is saying, that when you were outside of Christ, you were dominated by your sin, and you didn't even know it, you were dominated by the demonic influence of this world. You didn't have a clue about it, but that's how God assesses you. 
And all of us, not just some, not just the bad people, the Hitlers, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We just did what came natural to us, which is our sin nature, working its way out. And that's referred to as cravings of the flesh, desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Huh. Well, that's not a pretty picture. We were enemies of God by nature. Well, I, I didn't want to be an enemy of God by nature. Mephibosheth didn't want to be an enemy of David, but by nature, by lineage, he was. And by lineage, we come from Adam and Eve who pass from generation to generation to generation a sinful nature that prompts us to live in selfishness and selfish desires, things that we don't even realize that we're doing, things dominated by the spirit of this world not even knowing that's happening to us, and so our objects of wrath, and here's what objects of wrath means. Revelation makes it clear in the final place. Um, verse, chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. This is the end, a picture of what is going to happen at the end. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, meaning nothing could stand before God. Everything was revealed, everything was bowed down because of the glory and the greatness of God. And there was no place for them. There was no place to go. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were open. It's a metaphor. The books, another book was open, and which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So this is a metaphor that, that everything we have done, everything we've thought, everything we've spoken, everything we have acted out, every motive of our heart is known. It's recorded, but it's known by God. He judges us justly. He understands fully who we are, even more than we we understand who we are. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, the death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. This judgment of God is not like this, oh God is so full of wrath, he's just an angry God, he just wants to get people. The judgment of God is justice. It is, is, it is like a judge who knows the law and is applying it. Have you ever heard of a criminal that goes, Boy, that judge was good. He nailed me right. Oh, how did he know all that I did? I don't blame him for giving the sentence that he gave me. It's never that way. The criminal's always, the judge corrupt. The judge doesn't know what he's talking about. The judge, she's just biased against my color. The judge is this, the judge is that, the judge is wrong. I'm innocent. That's how it always sounds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So we are enemies of God by nature. We live out that, that, that brokenness, that sin. We heap up judgment on ourselves and we'll stand before God and he will give us the just judgment that we deserve. Terrible story. Now, let me read you a verse out of Romans that says, this is why Jonathan is like Jesus. 
God, but, but, God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while I was deserving of the, the justice of God, while I was an enemy of God, while I was sinning and didn't care about God, and because I was old enough when I came here, I know that was true of me. But while I was still a sinner, Christ died for you and me. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Christ? That what we read about in Revelation 20, there were two books. I don't know if you picked that up in the reading. There was the book of our actions, but then there was this book of life. And that in Christ, we are recorded, we are put into this book of life. And what is the book of life? The book of life is where Jesus, the Savior of the world, stands between the just and righteous wrath of God against us deserving sinners. And Jesus stands in the middle, making a covenant with us that he he will die to protect us. <laughs> Just like Jonathan died to protect John, uh, David. So Jesus stands between the king and between us, between the righteous judge and between us sinners. And while we were sinners, when we couldn't deserve, when we were like Mephibosheth, we didn't deserve anything, he stood and poured grace into us and he offers a covenant that he will stand between us and the Father if we come into the covenant with him by faith, believing that his death and resurrection pays for our sins and we surrender our life to him. And we make a covenant with him. Now, I'm gonna talk a little bit about covenant because our emphasis today, we're trying to constantly fight against the thought that we earn our way into God's good grace. Well, when I go to heaven and I stand before God, I'll just, you know, like my good and my bad will be there, and hopefully my good will outweigh my bad. Well, does that sound like it's gonna be the case from Ephesians and Revelation? Boy, if that's your plan, you are in without hope. Because God already told us how it's gonna roll out. God's plan was Jesus would stand between us, give his life for our protection and safety and forgiveness. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so he offers us a covenant. And so we, in our culture, we're always fighting against this idea, oh, you've got to earn something from God in order to get to heaven. There, there's no earning. There's nothing we can do to pay for our sins because they're too great, they're too many, and we're sinners. Everything we offer is tainted by selfishness and hatred and anger and whatever else we got in our souls. And so we can never offer an offering that's perfect to God. So Christ becomes our offering. But a covenant is an agreement between two people, a sacred promise. And I don't know if you were ever taught this, but Jesus came to initiate a new what? Covenant. And in a covenant, there is an agreement on both sides and an expectation on both sides. And in a covenant with Christ, like, well, well hold on for a second. Like when you make a marriage covenant, nobody really says it very often in a marriage, but the expectation is what? The expectation is, well, you're not gonna cheat on me. 
I promise myself to you. And, and the covenant is sacred, and the expectation is both parties are going to be faithful to one another. And so when Jesus makes a sacred promise, he says, I'm making a covenant, and I will be faithful to you. I will deliver you from your sin, and so that you can be reconciled with the Father. Well, what's our part of faithfulness? John chapter 13. As I have loved you, you love others. That's our part. In the covenant with Christ, there is a response, an expectation that you and I have. As I have loved you, so you love others. And so Jonathan said to David, I'll stand between you and my father, between death and life, and ensure your life, but you have a responsibility to show kindness. You have a responsibility to give as good as you get. Then Jesus comes along and initiates the exact same covenant that Jonathan initiated with David. And Jesus said, I will stand between you and God. I will stand between you and death and you and judgment. But you have a responsibility and that is to love others as I have loved you. That's the covenant. The salvation of Jesus Christ is not, hey, I believe in you, Jesus. Thanks for delivering me from hell. Thanks for delivering me from sin. I'll catch you when I get there. And now I'm gonna go live my life. You are not in a covenant if that's your attitude towards salvation. You're not in Jesus. You don't have what you think you have. Because when you enter into faith with Jesus, you are entering into a covenant and there is an expectation, just like there is a marriage, that you are gonna be faithful to keep the covenant. And the covenant summed up is, as I have loved you, so you love others. Love others. It's a deep covenant. So, I'm sitting in the office with Lisa. I'm just, 20 minutes. I'm gonna be late for my next one. She was the one that did it. Didn't she have any respect for my time? I'm, getting, I'm frustrated, my blood is born. I've been sitting there for 20 minutes. You can imagine what state I'm in. I'm worse than I am now, walking back and forth. I was just like I was. And you know what the Holy Spirit whispered into my heart? You might think, well, you've been late before, Ed, too. And I have. I, I, I struggle with always being right on time. So, Who are you to chat? That's not what those spirit whispered. Come on, she could be having a really bad day. You don't know why she's late. That's not what the Holy Spirit whispered. Well, both of those may be true. You know what the Holy Spirit whispered? Give as good as you get. <sighs> Love her like I loved you. Give as good as you get. See, it doesn't matter if the other person is kind or deserving of my frustration and anger. It doesn't matter if what they did hurt me deeply or a little bit. Give as good as you get is our side of the covenant. David gave to his enemy 
great wealth, position, brought him into his family, blessed him, because that's what God did for him. That's what Jonathan did for him. And what Jesus did for us, he gave us eternal wealth, eternal riches, an inheritance. He gave us adoption of sons and daughters into his family, a place at the table. And he has ensured we will always have what we need. We will be rich beyond our understanding in eternity. It's it's inconceivable. And he goes, now your part is to love others as I have loved you. And by the way, I loved you when you weren't deserving. I loved you when you were angry. I loved you when you cursed me. I loved you when you rejected me. I loved you when you argued with those that I sent to you. I loved you even though you were a sinner. I died for you. And there you go, Ed. You love as you have been loved. You give as good as you get. Well, I can't argue with that. I mean, I never win arguing with God anyway, but I can't argue with that. I can't say, well, that person deserves for me to be angry. Well, who cares? Give as good as you get. That person, my sister, she, she betrayed me. She hurt me deeply. Uh-huh, she probably did, but give as good as you get. Is that how I treated you? My boss lied and fired me, yeah, probably, and it was maybe even wrong, but give as good as you get. My friend betrayed me, Uh uh-huh, give as good as you get. My parent abused me. My advisor stole from me. Give as good as you get. Doesn't mean you don't deal with these issues doesn't mean you don't legally deal with them if there's a legal issue. It doesn't mean you don't confront the person. It means what you carry in your heart and your actions toward them must align with Jesus' covenant for you and me, which is love. Love them as I have loved you. I, I, I can't do that. Yeah, I had the same thought. Because sometimes the hurt and the pain is just too much. I think this is why Jesus said, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus' response is, yeah, I know this is hard. But the wounds created by these people can be very deep and require healing. But I want you to start with this. Pray for your enemies. Just start praying for them. And then love them, meaning ask me to show you what act of kindness you can start with. I'm gonna guess that none of us have gone through life, maybe not even this week, without somebody treating us with disrespect or hurt or pain or us carrying a deep wound that we have had in our lives. And Jesus is saying, here's how you respond to it. You enter into covenant with me. You love them as I have loved you. And that means to begin to pray for them and ask me how you can be kind to them. Who is that person that he's asking you to do that with? Please bow your head. This morning, Jesus, um, we're amazed at your love for us, that you would stand between us and death.
between a righteous God and our sinful acts, between our hatred and his holiness, and you would die so that we could be reconciled. And then you call us to now love as you have loved us. And what a heavy responsibility and a high calling, and we struggle. And so I ask that those that have those names or faces or memories in their heart that were brought up this morning, that you would bring light and life to them by helping them to begin to pray for that person that they hate or that has betrayed them or that they have been deeply wounded by and begin to pray for them regularly and then ask you for an act of kindness. Would you speak and lead us according to your word? Amen.